Welcome to the Topeka First podcast. We are one church with several locations. Our mission is to reach our community with the message of Jesus. If you would like to give to support this podcast and the ministries of our church, please visit topekafirst.com giving. Enjoy the podcast. Well, this morning, uh, we are going to uh, wrap up our final question and uh, actually final two questions now uh we're we're finishing this up and then we're getting into it seems like there's another holiday besides thanksgiving coming up i'm trying to remember what that is could be christmas right and and so then we'll be get ourselves prepared uh for christmas uh but uh today we're going to be wrapping this up and we we haven't been able to answer all of the questions that were given to us and i will say that there were some questions about the holy spirit uh that we have uh that we did not handle in this this situation or in this series although uh you may have been out on vacation but we did have a month-long ser- uh, series on the holy spirit back in in the summertime and so sometimes that's a challenge with uh, vacation and those kind of things as well uh, but, uh, and we'll, I'm sure that we'll uh, work with some of those later on. And uh, so today we're going to split this message up into two, uh, two elements, uh, two parts. First, we're going to consider a question about Moses in Exodus chapter 4. And second, we're going to deal with a question about our current culture and its effects on the local church and kind of just to walk through a couple things here uh, together. And uh, the, the first question uh, that we have, the Moses question, I'll call it, would be, uh, it says this, it says, when Moses was going back to Egypt to deliver to Israel, that is, uh, in, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 24 to 26, God was about to kill Moses, uh, but his wife circumcised their son, and the Lord spared him. And then the person that wrote the question says, I don't understand. That's fine. And uh, so we want to look at this passage and handle this question together. One of the big things is, is it's important whenever time, anytime we get a question that we look at uh, the context of what's being said and what we're reading. And uh, I think if there's any one word that we can use as I'm walking through these two questions this morning, it could be distracted. We're going to use that uh, as, as a key word for us, distracted. Have you ever been distracted? Squirrel, you know, ha- have you ever? You know, I think everybody has at one point or the other. And uh, uh, Mr. Khrushchev, if you've been around for a while and remember that when the Soviet Union was still going, Mr. Khrushchev, he of uh, uh, the former Soviet Union, told of a time when they had a, a real problem with uh, petty theft. And to stop it, uh, they put up guards around all of their factories to try to kind of slow that down. And uh, at a sawmill in Leningrad, they uh, had a guard, and the guard basically knew everybody. He knew everybody in the area. They were, they were all lived in the same place. And uh, so the first evening, out came a guy named Petrovich. I probably slaughtered his name. But Petrovich has a wheelbarrow, and inside of the wheelbarrow, he has a big sack and uh, the guard's like, hey, this is a little su- suspicious. I'm not sure what the deal is here. Uh, what are you doing? And so uh, he stops Petrovich. He says, hey, look, uh, I want you to open the sack up because I need to know what's inside of it. 
And so he takes the sack, he, he dumps the sack out on the ground, and as he goes through it, he doesn't find anything in it except for sawdust. Of course, you know, that's pretty handy, right? Everybody should have sawdust. And uh, so he, he sees the sawdust, he said, okay, it all looks good, put it all back in, and he takes, takes the sawdust in the wheelbarrow and takes it home. Well, you know, all, all fine, right? And, but the problem was is, for about a week or so, Petrovich keeps coming through with these sacks of sawdust. You know, what's the big deal? It's a waste product, right? At least back then. Uh, and so he keeps bringing them through. And so finally, the guard says to him, he's like, look, I'm not stupid. Uh, I know you are smuggling something out of this place, and I'm not sure what it is. Uh, and so he talks to him. He says, look, I'm going to let you off the hook. Uh, if you t will tell me this time what it is you are taking out of our factory. And he said, wheelbarrows. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, so the guard was distracted. He was distracted by some things that were just right in front of him. And we also find that Moses was distracted as well. Here he was a prophet, he was called of God, and God uh, called him to go and to free Israel. He starts going, but really he was distracted by something else. Uh, Moses hadn't followed one of God's basic commands that was required for the Israelites to follow. And God says, if you don't follow, I will stop you dead in your tracks, literally. And so let's go over to Exodus chapter 4 together. We're actually going to start reading in verse 19 because that gives us a better context of uh, the question was in the, in the last uh, couple of uh, verses there in 24, but we need to get a context. It says, Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. Story on that, you know, he took the life out of an Egyptian that was, that was harming some of, the, uh, some of the Jewish people at the time. Okay. Verse 20, so Moses took his wife and sons, uh, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you to the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Now that's an important part there, a clue too. And he, he said, I, I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go so I will kill your firstborn son. Seems pretty drastic. We're dealing with a different time here. We have to understand. And here is, that's not even the part in question. The part in question is the next verse. He said, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut, her son's, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord uh, let, uh, let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. So, not the most joyous passage here, but it's the Word of God, and we're going to deal with it as it is. Uh, and I'll say right off the top that this seems a little harsh to us today. It's because of our cultural perspective, for the most part. Also, we have been trained in our culture over the years 
uh, uh, to follow the golden rule. Now you'd say, well, that's, that's a Bible thing. It is. And in fact, Jesus said, do unto others as you'd have them to do unto you. But I remember when I was a teacher in the, in the community college, even then in our textbooks, that was one of the principles that was taught. So, and that was part of it. Did they realize it was Bible? I don't know. Probably. They, they, it was in the textbook. Praise God. Anyway. Uh, so uh, it's a biblical perspective that Jesus pushed us towards to treat other, do unto others as we'd have them to do to us. But the fact is, is God is in the middle of revealing himself to a broken world that all it knows is force, really. You're dealing with kings and countries and all kinds of people, and, and, but we have to realize that God is holy. He's set apart from sinful man, but on the other side of that, he is also a just God. And he, he's making sure here that Moses learns to respect him He's also making sure that Egypt and the Pharaoh learns to respect God as well. And so there are some uh, things that we have to tackle here. The expression, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go, here is used for the first time. Now really, this goes back on last week's message as we talked a little bit about free will and stuff. And here, and in this, at this point... Uh, in all, there are about 10 places where hardening of Pharaoh is ascribed to God. And, and I have those. It's chapter 4, verse 21 and on. There's several of them. If you'd like those afterwards, I can give them to you. Uh, but we also have to notice that just as firmly that Pharaoh hardened his own heart in another 10 passages. Uh, and chapter 7, verse 13 and so on from there. Uh, but so the hardening was just as much Pharaoh's own act as, as it was the work of God. Uh, something more significant is that Pharaoh alone was the cause of the hardening in the first sign and all, and, and all the first five plagues. So it wasn't until the sixth plague uh, was it said that God actually moved in and hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus chapter 9, verse 12. Okay, we're going to move past this, and, and God, warned, uh, God warned Moses that that's what he was going to do. And this, this goes with last week, but let's look at these uh, 24, verse 24 and 25 there, and keep in mind the immediate context here. God has just set, uh, Mo, uh, sent Moses to deliver Israel and to confront the king, uh, king of Egypt, right? Pharaoh himself. And, and before this, in Exodus chapter 3 and early in chapter 4, you have God calling Moses through the burning bush, right? And this shows how important it is uh, to be aware of the content of what you're reading when you try to answer a question like, it, like this. Really need even greater context when you look into earlier passages here in, in the Old Testament in Genesis. And it gives you an understanding why circumcision was so important at this point to the people of Israel. Now, we understand that for today, we have circumcision of the heart. It's, uh, we put our faith and our trust in Christ. Uh, and so, but Moses was a descendant of Abraham who had a covenant with God. Then you have Isaac, who is Abraham's uh, son. And then uh, God renewed the covenant with Isaac's son, Jacob. And then we understand that Moses was born to parents... Uh, who were part of the tribe of Levi from the Israelites. So it's important so you realize that here is Moses and he's connected to that. Let's look at Exodus chapter 2 together. Verses 1 and 2. 
then on to end of three. He says, now a, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that she was a, uh, he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could not take, uh, hide, him any, hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. She's trying to protect his life so the Pharaoh didn't wipe him out with the others. And uh, so Pharaoh's uh, daughter comes along and she picks up Moses as her own kid. And uh, she picks him up. And uh, the great thing was that Moses' sister, she kind of goes along in the ride, right? She's paying attention. Hey, what ha what's going to happen to this baby brother of mine and so she waits around uh and pharaoh's daughter comes gets the baby and says hey she sees the sister hey awesome right it worked out good she says hey could you find another hebrew lady who may may be able to nurse this this new this young baby uh for me and she's like well sure i think i may know somebody her mom right and so she goes gets her and uh and then uh, Moses is actually nursed uh, for a while by his own mom there until he was old enough to be weaned. Uh, but we find something. So who was the real mom? Well, it was Moses' mom who was Hebrew, a Hebrew and Israelite. And here, here's a key to understand this passage. Sorry, we're working on the microphone, and I must be spitting in it. But anyhow, here's a key for us. Uh, Moses was a descendant of Abraham, Genesis chapter 17, if you want to look over there with us, uh, and uh, it says, uh, verse 9 and 11, it says, then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenants you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Significant thing for the people of Israel. And in verse, nine, in verse 14, it says this. It says, any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from, this, from his people. He has broken my covenant. So that is a key to us. So the Old Testament rite of circumcision helps explain this whole thing. There are some important clues here in these two verses of, of Exodus 4, 24 and 25. Also, the quote of that, my firstborn son, makes a connection between some of these passages. So the Lord has really confronted Moses as he was going to accomplish the mission of God in Egypt. We really don't know the details of the deadly experience. We don't know all of that. Uh, there's some textual things that they, they, the scholars would say. We don't know exactly all the details there, but that really doesn't affect our understanding of what's taken place in the passage. We, we know that Moses was in the path of God's discipline. That we know for sure. And then his wife, Zipporah, uh, takes action, and, and this leads us to believe that she instinctively realized that Moses' dangerous situation was so great that if, uh, if le uh, it left only her to be able to act. 
In other words, Moses could do nothing at this point from what we understand in the scripture. And uh, so uh, he wasn't able to help. But one thing is for sure, they had failed to circumcise their, their, their uh, kids. And that is what scripture is showing us there. And she knew uh, that's what, that what had to be done. And, and scripture seems to show that she hated it. Because she said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. She seemed to be upset about the deal. This shows that the root of the problem was in her annoyance and disgust with this rite of circumcision. But the fact was, it was God's command, and it was Moses' responsibility as a Hebrew, as an Israelite, to be able to do, to be able to be part of the covenant, he had to do this, and Moses had neglected to circumcise his son, apparently because this is what his wife's wishes were, or maybe it was to keep peace in the home. We don't know exactly. But Moses almost gave up his opportunity to serve God and to deliver his people out of Egyptian slavery, and he almost wasted 80 years of all this preparation and stuff where does that leave us? I think it should make us think. I think it should make us step back and think just a little bit. Maybe we should ask ourselves some questions. And uh, we should ask ourselves things like, am I obeying God in the, in the basic things or only the things I want to do? We're not talking about circumcision here in that sense. For us, as I said, it's a matter of faith in following the Lord. But also the New Testament gives us wonderful guidance on how we should live our lives and how we should follow him. There's some things that we, other things that we could ask ourselves. Am I sharing my faith when I have the opportunity? Am I, am I living right when no one sees me? Uh, are my morals like our culture that we live in, or are they what Scripture asks of me? Those are some really important and significant questions that we should ask ourselves. And as followers of Jesus, for us, we don't have to follow that rite of circumcision. Uh, it's a matter of, uh, of faith in the heart. We understand that. But are we living out our faith? So to emphasize this connection between Moses here, uh, his condition and the circumcision of his son, Zipporah, uh, took the foreskin and touched Jesus or touched uh, Moses' feet with it. And I know that seems gross. Hey, I just it is what it is. Okay, and uh, a lot of you guys see stuff on TV that uh, you uh, anyway. You you get the picture. You get the idea here. And so I think for us, uh, the Bible wasn't written by Puritans, by the way. Uh, we live in a society in this part of the Western world where we have been somewhat of a Puritan society initially, and it's uh, probably changed on how we handled certain things, even from a pulpit like this. Uh, but the scripture wasn't written by Puritans. They came a few centuries later, quite a few centuries later. Uh, we understand that. So Zipporah gave, gave in to God's command in place of Moses. The Lord let Moses go and the grip of death was lifted. It, it could be that God used this to help Zipporah realize the importance of being part of God's covenant. It's very possible. 
that God had a, had a face down with Moses because he did not obey God's command of the covenant. For us as followers of Jesus, we have to recognize that we have, uh, we've been saved by faith, uh, by faith, with grace, all of those things, Jesus' blood, where he shed his uh, blood on the cross for us so that we could be forgiven. And we recognize that. And God has this face down in this situation. Uh, not, not only did God have this face down, but he, he called and sent uh, Moses. God called and sent Moses to free the Israelite slaves. His job required him to be a spokesman for God, right? No question. In fact, if he wasn't uh, willing to follow God's commands, then he was simply a false prophet. A false prophet. He's a prophet. We understand that. Moses is considered a prophet. The crazy thing is that uh, was Moses' wife. It was Moses' wife that followed through with God's command. Interesting. Uh, and here, here's a, uh, just a thought. Moses may have been distracted since he was raised by Egyptians, right? We know that. We know that he, uh, he was not only was he an Israelite, but he went into Egypt, and he was uh, raised in the, in the Pharaoh's household. And so maybe he was distracted by that and the culture that he lived in. And it could be that he just ignored circumcision, thinking that it was passe, you know, that was for Abraham and a couple generations after, but the rest of the Israelites, well, we don't have to worry about that. But the demands of our culture uh, in our world must never overrule our walk of faith. As we follow Jesus, we, it must not, uh, the world's rules and culture must not rule over us. It's always been a problem, always has been, and it seems to be more, uh, becoming more challenging in the world that we live in, at least in the Western world. Uh, there was a man who won the Templeton uh, Prize for Progress in Religion 36 years ago, back in the 1980s, and his name was Alexander. He was from the former Soviet Union, and uh, I won't try to say his last name because I won't be able to say it, and I don't speak Russian, but Alexander uh, was an Orthodox Christian, and he was a critic of communism. He was imprisoned in the former Soviet Union for his remarks, and in 1983, in his acceptance speech of the uh, Templeton Prize, uh, he recalled the words he heard as a child when his elders sought to explain the ruinous upheaval in Russia at the time. And this is what they told him. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. And then from there, he adds on and he says this. If I were called upon to identify briefly the principal trait of the entire 20th century. Remember, you're back in the 1980s. He says, here too, I would be unable to find anything more precise and pithy than to repeat once again what his elders said. Men have forgotten God. I don't think it's any different than today. Now we're in the 21st century, right? The 20th is gone. Uh, many of us were born then, but it's gone. And so we can be distracted in this life by other things that, like Alexander said, men have forgotten God. 
Or we may, may be so distracted by culture that like Moses, we ignore God's basic commands in our lives. So this helps us to kind of walk into that culture question. And, uh, and I think that the culture question is good. And we, we've deduced the question down to this because, and we're going to say it this way, what happens if when out the government tries to tax our churches out of existence? Well, uh, there, are, there are many groups in America that want to limit churches now if they, if they don't follow or cater to their agendas. Uh, and you can, uh, you can probably list a bunch of those agendas. There are plenty of them in our culture today. Uh, really, that's been building since the 1960s, but still it's the same age-old problem that men have forgotten God. And uh, we know that it's really exploded in the last 20 years and maybe in the last 15 even, even more, more so. But one of the first things that I will say is that the church doesn't have to have a formal tax status to exist. But it makes it easier financially. The, the church's legal status as a charity or nonprofit religious organization is not mandatory to be called the church by God. We live in difficult times, and something that we must remember is this, that living as a Christian means living in complexity. We have to have a biblical understanding of what the church really is. We must be willing to live out our faith, even in challenging times, and it was, it was that way for the early church. We know it in the beginning. Uh, you, uh, do you remember that most of the apostles were martyred for their faith, and in early, early Rome, many Christians died in the Colosseum by the hands of the Roman gladiators. Friends, it was not a game. It was real life and death. And it seems like uh, it's become more challenging for us today. And we know that people and other uh, Christians in other nations of the world, they face some of those same type of things. But let's look at some practical things and the eternal things as well that are important for us. It's not mandatory for a church to become a nonprofit to exist in the United States of America. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are benefits for those of us who give to the church. If you atomize your taxes and give to the church, you can write it off on your income tax. Charities are a state approved nonprofit and there are requirements for them, all of those things. Also, there's a benefit of being part of the fellowship like the Assemblies of God, and I thank the Lord for the Assemblies of God, a, a wonderful umbrella of ministry that is very careful on how they do uh, things and work very hard at staying above board. And, and if leadership takes an unethical or an immoral direction in the local church or in a group uh, they, uh, and starts to follow culture. The great thing about the overall organization is they can handle that, bring correction, straighten things out, and move uh, people forward to, to work in God's manner. Churches who are not under the umbrella uh, of, uh, of an organization and, uh, and they're maybe independent have a bigger challenge to protect themselves. There's no question. Uh, but we're all still on the same team if we are faithfully serving Christ. That's what's important for us as followers of Jesus. If, if we name Christ as our Lord and Savior by faith, then we're on the same team. E 
even if every state and the federal government took away our tax-exempt status because we will not follow their loose moral standards, it will not stop the true church of Jesus Christ. It will not. It cannot. It will not. History proves that, and the future will prove that as well. Nothing can stop the church of Jesus. My question is, do you believe the book? Do you believe what the word of God says? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, these words. He said, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. My friends, there is victory for those of us that follow Christ. There is victory, eternal victory. We do not have to be limited by the world around us and by the culture that says other things. That no matter what culture says or others say, the church will carry on. In fact, history shows us that the church thrives even in difficult times. The, the church as a body around the world in different places, uh, they are facing difficulties. Think of Cuba. Think of uh, the former Soviet Union and other places like that. And all of they've, all they've walked through and the church has still exploded in those places. I think that the question that was given to us, that was asked, is legitimate. Uh, what I am not saying is that we stick our head in the sand. That is not what I'm saying. Uh, but I also believe that this issue, uh, 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 the issue for this is change is scary for people. And maybe for younger people who are growing up in this generation, that is, is bothersome. But for those who have been around for a long period of time, you realize you've seen things and you've seen things change. Excuse me, you've seen things change. And so that can be a little bit more scary. Yet, the church has had to adjust over and over to be able to reach the world that we live in. Doesn't mean that we give in to uh, uh, the moral standings and we, uh, the, the moral views of the world, although many do, but that doesn't mean that we have to. Sometimes we do good at dealing with the change that we face, and sometimes we don't do the best at dealing with change in our culture. Living as a true Christian means living in complexity. I like what Mark Batterson said. I, I shared this in, our, uh, in our, my midweek uh, uh, group, and Mark, Mark Batterson in his, his book, he said, in Chase the Lion, he says this, Satan wants us to live in a defensive posture. And he uses two primary tactics to accomplish it, fear and discouragement. He wants us to run away from fear, uncertainty, and risk. But Christ calls us to chase the lions. He calls us to follow him no matter what we face in this world. We must not fear the future. Things change. We have to adjust. doesn't mean we give in. It doesn't mean that we're to give in to the, to a moral, the, the moral stance of the world that we live in as followers of Christ. But cultural changes have hit us hard. There's no question in the sense of the church in the United States. Are we going to step back and learn how to drive in this world of uncertainty? Or are we going to just give up 
I think our best thing is to learn how to drive in this culture, in this world that we live in right now. And uh, we don't have to give up. For some, they want to give up. They want to acquiesce or, in other words, submit to the popular numerality of this world. That's not the direction to take. We don't have to go that direction, but we must stay relevant so we can share the gospel of Christ to the world around us. Don't take that relevant word too far from what I'm saying here. We enjoy the freedom of religion in America, and we must continue to work as individuals to keep the freedom that we have. That's why it's important for us to vote as well as a citizen. We are citizens. And so we must not forget our mission as God's work. We're God's people. We are also citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus commanded us over in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. He said this, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you, with you always to the very end of the age. <laughs> he didn't say, do it if a governmental organization allows us. He didn't say that. that that's the way that some, uh, some of the church in northern Asia has to deal with things. That's the way they have operated. Some are some of the churches there in northern Asia, one of those large countries there, as you know the name of it probably. Some are state approved, some churches are, and some are churches underground, what we would call them. And so they live in an atheistic communist country, and it isn't easy for them. They've got some freedom for a while, and then they kind of uh, clamp down on them more recently as well. And it isn't easy for them. But the interesting thing about the church there is the church has exploded. The church has thrived there. Do they have challenges? Absolutely they have challenges. I think we have to ask ourselves these questions this morning. Are you going to be distracted by these very real issues? Are you going to be distracted by them? We, we know they're real. But we must put our faith in what is not seen. As the scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, says up there for you, it says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I'm thankful. Then we can't miss Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 and 2 says this to us. He says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Could you imagine Abraham? For goodness sake, this, this guy, the Lord calls him and says, Hey, I'm going to make you the father of of a whole lot of people. He didn't have many people around him at that time, but look what happened now. Look at verse 6 and what it says here in Hebrews 11. It says, And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We want to seek God. We want to follow him. We want to put our trust in him. And I want to you this morning as we wrap up this. 
don't be distracted by our culture and by their threats. Place yourself in the hands of the living God and keep faith. Trust him. Keep yourself from doing what Moses did by just ignoring God's basic commands. We've been given basic commands. First of all, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, right? To put our trust in him. Don't just go for the big ones. Go for the small ones as well as we serve God faithfully. Follow the Lord with all your heart. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to pray for you this morning. I want to ask God to give you strength, and then we're going to worship the Lord with another song, and then after that we'll be dismissed. Don't forget the pictures afterwards as well, but let me pray for you this morning. Father, I ask you this morning that each person in this place will not be pulled along by the culture all of the things uh, around us that try to pull us to the left or to the right and try to pull us into, into the, the, the scrapping and the fights that the world has. And Father, help us to recognize that you have, you have called us and you have chosen us. You've chosen each and every one of us to serve you, to follow you, to walk with you. And, and we say, yes, Lord. And, and Father, we ask you to help us. Help us to live our lives of faith in the complexities of the world that we live in. Grant us the, the courage and the faith to follow you, not allowing everything else to cause us to submit to the morality of the world that we live in. Because you've called us for better things. You've chosen us for better things. Father, we understand it's not your will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But we know some go their own way. Help us, Lord, to live out our faith in such a way that, Father God, that lives, lives around us, our neighbors, our friends, our family, that they will see that Christ is living through our lives and that we will be that example of what Christ has done for us. Father, help us to live it out in Jesus' name.